0: Okay, uh, we are in the book of Jonah. If, believe it or not, this is setting us up for the book of Daniel because I think in many ways these two books, uh, I'm not going to say they're mirror images, but they, they complement each other. One for northern Israel and one for southern Judah. Jonah, a prophet. Daniel, who really winds up being a prophet too. And what I want to do tonight is... <laughs> I don't want to say grip it and rip it, but I kind of mean grip it and rip it. I want to go verse by verse and see how far we get. Just meditating on what's there and trying to connect it within Scripture. And remember, the basic principle of interpreting Scripture is not that you need to know the ancient Near East, and it's not that you need to know archaeology, and it's not that you have to be in depth in Hebrew, though that certainly is helpful. It's Scripture interprets Scripture. So if you're struggling with a passage, one of the best things you could do is ask, is there another one that's like this or another one that mentions this or another one that has similar themes that can help us work through this? And what's more, Scripture is not in uh, contradiction with each other. So, you know, lots of, I don't know, scholars like to say, look at all these contradictions in Scripture. I think they just don't know how to read it. Uh, correctly, And they've, they've been taught more scientific model than anything else. But what we want to do today is we're going to start with verse 1 and keep going. And if you'll remember last time, we, we, there's a context here, right? And let's, let's talk about just what has come before Jeroboam II in northern Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. What has led to this point in Jonah's life, just 100 years before? Who can give a brief synopsis? Ready, go. Not all at once. Did they build bales and and temples all over the place so that the temple was no longer centrally located and they did what they thought they worshipped God the way they thought God wanted to be worshipped? Correct. What, they, what Leah just said is essentially two things happen. First, it starts off as the breaking of the second commandment, which is making a graven image Yahweh essentially and this happens under Jeroboam he sets up worship centers really all over and we're not going to take the time to do this but if you look at those sites they're all places where Abraham set up centers of worship so they were all known to them so if you were setting up golden calves at Shechem for example uh, Abraham had set up a worship center and he's in what Jeroboam does essentially is Same thing you see at the bottom of Sinai, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Sets up golden calves and says, here's Yahweh, the one who brought you out of Israel, excuse me, out of Egypt, out of slavery, right? Big no-no. And again, this is what's often missed uh, with the Old Testament when you see these things. It's not straight up idol worship, though that happens with Ahab. That does happen with Ahab where he goes right after Baal. And the asterisk and all that, then this crazy guy named Yehu <laughs> shows up and he starts taking heads, literally. You know, and if you know anything about the story with, with Jezebel, whew, it gets rough real fast with how he handles that situation. But, but even Yehu goes right back to breaking the second commandment. And so the temptation, and we face this too, is always to try and make God in our own image. And we do this in order to try and control him or make him seem more powerful or whatever it may be. And to us, a couple of bulls don't seem like power. To the ancient world, that seems like power, right? Instead, what you'll get is like, uh, I'm not going to go down this rabbit trail, but for 10 seconds. It's, it's Just start looking at images of Jesus over the last 200 years in America. You get effeminate Jesus. You get workout Jesus. You get kind of looks a little bit like Rocky Jesus. And we're, we're, we're trying to make it like he's really masculine. No, he's very sensitive. You, you know, all these different, no, he likes baby blue. No, he doesn't. You know, all that stuff. Because we're trying to make him into what we think is powerful. This is why you look around this building or in our sanctuary, where is the image of Jesus? Nowhere. We have symbols, Right? that point to his work, and this too. We, these are, if you didn't know, these are our three chief symbols. Sacrament, word, and then cross, redemption. Right? All these things. And within this one, you get, with the table, you get both resurrection and, and his, his sacrificial death. Right? So all these things have been leading up to Jonah, and he knows it. Right? Jonah is a prophet to a, a sinful, walking away from the Lord that's been, You know, Judah does this and does this. It goes up and down. Israel just, mm, it just tanks, right? Then we talked about uh, two important laws in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy has been showing a lot uh, on our Sundays, but uh, Deuteronomy 4, which straight up says, listen, if you start doing this, if you walk away from me or you start worshiping me according to graven images, I'm going to hammer you and I will remove you from the land, You will be exiled. And when you're in your exile, there you will learn to call on me. He's telling them this is going to happen in Deuteronomy, right? So this is several hundred years. You still have the period of the judges. You still have Saul. You still have, you know, the Davidic dynasty, all that to come. So there's that. I think Jonah knows his law. Then there's Deuteronomy 32 in which he says basically the same thing. You will forsake me. You will go after these other gods eventually, and when you do, I will send you out, and I will use the people who are not my people to become my people, and when I do that, you will be jealous for me as I am jealous for you, and so if you're going through books like say, Hosea, uh, go read that book, boy, he had a tough time uh, as, a, <laughs> as a prophet, but you know, he, he, Hosea was called to take... It's debated, but it looks like a, either an extremely loose woman or a prostitute as a wife, and his first child is named Not My Child. God tells him to name his kid that. Not My Kid. Can you imagine that? It's not like, hey, Sawyer. It's like, hey, Not My Kid, come here. Did I see you hitting your brother? Not No mercy. That was the other name of his kid, right? <laughs> Tough to be a prophet. Um, all that... Is in the background. Jonah, I think, is safe to say, faithful prophet. Uh, you've already had guys like Elijah, Elisha, Amos is a little bit after Jonah. And if you want to read that message, it is basically God showing up with a hammer, get ready. Uh, Hosea, as I've already mentioned, he's saying, listen, y'all are not my people. Nahum and Habakkuk. Uh, two books that I know are, boy, they're, they're just tearing up the bookshelves right now. Uh, those are both statements of judgment on Assyria after Nineveh, Nineveh had repented, but then turned away. So maybe a hundred years or so after, maybe more than that, after, after Jonah. Uh, that's the background. Enough of that. Let's get to Jonah 1. All right, so let's read verse 1 here. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying. So, right from the beginning, what does this tell you about Jonah? He's a prophet. The word came to him. Does that tell us anything about him anymore? He's from a known family. Yep, there's that. Amittai is a known family. He's, He's within the court for sure. It also tells you that he's probably a faithful guy. Right, The word of the Lord does come to unfaithful people like say Nebuchadnezzar and it winds up in his conversion. But this is, this is probably a faithful guy who's been serving. The word showed up to him and this is what it says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. All right. So what's the message? What's, what's Jonah supposed to do? And let's, let's walk through that, that sentence a little bit. So what's he supposed to do? Missionary. Be a missionary? What's, what's the specific line? He's supposed to do what? Right. Call out against. So there's, I think, some misunderstanding. With Jonah, when he finally, and we know how the story goes, when he finally goes and gets on it and he says, 40 days in your toast, and people say, see, he's a reluctant prophet. That's what he's supposed to say. God is against you. So I think he's actually preaching the exact message God wants him to preach, right? Which should tell us something about telling the truth in our culture, that we should maybe not be quite so affirming. And maybe just be willing to tell the truth. And I, and I don't think, well, who knows? But I doubt Jonah was going through like, hey, morons. I think he just preached the word, right? All right, so call out. What about, what does it mean by that great city? What do you think? Is it just big? Do we see Nineveh mentioned anywhere else in the Bible? Here, here's a hint. If I'm saying this, the answer is yes. Do we see it anywhere else in the Bible? It is notoriously evil. That is true. Look up Genesis 10. Oh, yeah, we're going to be playing sword drills today, so you might as well have your Bible out. Genesis 10. Here, I'm gonna, if I can find it, I'm trying to do all this one handed. So, if you look at Genesis 10, Genesis 10 uh, is a genealogy, go figure, uh, a genealogy uh, coming out of uh, Noah's descendants and his family. And when you look at these, uh, you have Noah, you have Shem. This is 10.1. Not, we're not going to walk through all this chapter. We're going to actually jump to verse 6 here in a minute. Uh, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, and these are the sons that were born to them, or the families that came from them. Of, all, of those brothers, Shem, Ham, Japheth, which one was cursed? It's not because his name sounds like pork. Ham, right? So the, the cleanliness has nothing to do with... It. All right, that was a joke, sorry. Um, look at verse 6. The sons of Ham. So these, these are sons that have been cursed, right? That are, they will not inherit the kingdom. They will not be a part of Noah's family. The lineage actually goes through Shem, but here it goes. The sons of Ham. See if any of these sound familiar to you. Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Already not a good start, right? The sons of Cush, Seba, Ha'ilah, Sabta, Raama, Sabteca, the sons of Raama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Notice, whenever you're reading through this, and they they just take an aside like, hey, y'all, this guy. You're supposed to go, whoa, okay, who is this guy? Now, we read that mighty man. What is that? We don't exactly know what it means in verse 9 that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. This guy must have been well known even at this time period with Moses, like a man of notoriety. Like we might say, like Caesar, you know, or Zeus, or I don't know, Artaxerxes, whoever, right? Right. I don't know what it means, a mighty hunter before the Lord, and, the, and scholars are absolutely divided over what that means, but it, he is notorious at the very least, and he was, he was a big, big deal. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, right? Then he has Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. That's basically the land of, of the Babylonians. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-er, Calah, and Rezin. Between Nineveh and Calah, that is the great city. So, when it says that great city, where are you seeing the lineage happening here? It's through Ham, who is cursed, right? He's the one I'm not going to walk through all of what this means. I'm just not. But he's the guy who was cursed by Noah, and rightly so. Uh, the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Correct. The Babylonians and the Assyrians come from this guy. He's, at the very least, incredibly warlike in some way. And so when you're looking at Nineveh, it's a great city. It says it there, and it says it again in the book of Jonah. It's not just one town. If you look at that, it's four, right? It's four cities. So it's kind of like, what would be an example? Like maybe New York with all its boroughs and how they just kind of run one into the other. Or uh, when we lived in St. Louis, for example, it would take, we lived in the, the last house we lived in were in the far western suburbs. And if you wanted to go all the way down to the downtown, like where the arches and the stadiums and all that, it was about a 40 minute drive. It's like 35, 40 minutes uh, if traffic was, was pretty good. That's continuous city all that time. So it's like driving through Atlanta in traffic. Is it, it's like, is the city that big or is traffic that bad? And the answer is yes, right? It just keeps going and going. So when he gets to that part about he walked through the, the city for three days, how long would it take to walk on foot through Atlanta preaching? Pretty good while, right? So, great city, there's already, you should have in your mind, where has Israel been? Not good. What does the law say? Right, you're going to be exiled from the land that I gave to you. And what's more, I'm going to make a people who are not my people, my people. And where is this guy who's been serving in Israel's court being sent? to that great city, right? So, that leads to verse 3. Why then do you think Jonah fleed to Tarshish, which sounds like a speech impediment, uh, Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord? So what, is, what, is that, what does that mean? Let's, let's talk through what's going on there with verse 3. Why would he flee? And what is the significance of the places where he goes to, and why does it say the presence of the Lord? What do you think? That's the into the world. Right. What what we think is Tarsus was basically uh, like Spain, essentially. And if you know your, your geography. Uh, of where he was in Israel, that is going the exact opposite direction as far as he thinks he could possibly go. But notice it says, from the presence of the Lord. What does that mean, do you think? Mm-hmm. Does he think that God's not there because he hasn't been preached there yet? Could be. That could be that he thinks God is not there. That's true. Or that he's he's just running from his relationship. That I think that is certainly true that he's like, uh uh-uh, uh, I'm not doing this. God's right. Presence is, is temple, right? right. That's right. The assumption is that God is on his holy hill, which is at the temple. But let's think about this too. They don't have the temple already. That's down in Jerusalem, right? They've been wor- worshiping in false centers at Shechem, among other places, right? So he's, he's trying to do what we often do when we sin. We're trying to act as if God cannot see us or will not find us, right? So think about it. Uh, when I'm at a basketball game and I decide in that moment these officials are desperately wicked and they are, we are all here in need of justice. And I'm going to stand and make my opinions known. Am I considering, first, what are the... Because I'm sitting on the front row because I'm that guy. What are the people behind me thinking, like, Baldy, sit down, right? Oh, oh, yeah, and these people know I'm a pastor. But am I considering what God thinks in that moment? And the answer always is no even though I, th- I think I'm justified probably not right this is what happens in sin is that we we imagine and he does too running from the presence of the Lord he thinks in this moment that somehow God is not the the God of the heavens and the earth despite what he's going to say in the coming verses about God Right, So he thinks he can run from God, and he thinks that somehow God does not see me. This is kind of akin, I don't want to beat this too much, this is akin to, you know, ah, we're going to have a casual faith Friday. It's all right, God's not going to do Except he's purposely, I do not want to do what God wants to do. Well, if he's ready to be the runner, he also knows what's going to happen. The Jews are going to be cast out. Right. And somebody, right. Right. And he's thinking, well, that must be the so right. if God is soon to be there. Right. They will come and take over Israel. That's right. Warren just nailed it. Uh, Jonah has figured it out. If I can't do my job as a prophet, then God can't turn Nineveh to be his people and to rule over us. So I'm not going to do my job. I'm just going to go run as far as I can possibly go away from God, away from this calling. And in turn, Nineveh will not be, uh, we will not be exiled there. That king will not be over us. They will not be God's special people. None of that stuff. I think that's all in view. I think he's, he's figured it out because he's a, he's a sharp fellow. All right, so let's look at, we on verse 4, and it's 6 o'clock. <laughs> But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Uh, Let's just keep reading a little bit. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled, pay attention there, that's a repetition, right? God hurled the sea or the storm. The sailors hurled uh, Interesting, right? He's, he's concerned for his life. So let's, let's talk through this. So God hurled the storm at Jonah. So first reading through, it's just like, okay, that's, that's what he said. But, but it sounds like there's agency there. God is hurling. He's throwing this at Jonah. In the same way, these sailors are hurling. They're trying to get lighten the load so they don't die. And you compare that with verse 12 and verse 15, and they hurl Jonah into the storm. So all this hurling language, and it's very specific in the Hebrew, and it means just what it sounds like. God is throwing, they throw the cargo. The final cargo they throw, Jonah, right into uh, the storm. Now... We usually look at this and say, what on earth was up with this guy who was able to sleep in this storm? Was he really tired? I've even taught on this passage in years past and, and thought about it in terms of maybe it's kind of like uh, the guy who's been busted in jail, who's, who's guilty and he knows it, and so he's just going to go ahead and get a good night's sleep. He's there, might as well. Right? That's shown up in movies before, so shame on me, I guess, right for thinking that. Are there any other, here we go, get ready. Are there any other places in scripture where you see someone going into a deep sleep and then things happen? Yes, Adam is, is the first one. What happened with Adam? Yeah. That's right. That's right, that's Genesis 2, that's, uh, <laughs> that's Genesis 2, and what's really interesting there, uh, this has come from study recently, that term that, that is used for rib is kind of a later usage uh, in the Hebrew, this is crazy, when you start to think about it, you, you read the Hebrew text and you think, this is all the words they had, no it's not, they had thousands upon thousands of words, And the word that's being used there originally means side, and it comes to be known as rib. And it makes sense, your rib is is on your side, but that same word is used to describe the side of the Ark of the Covenant, for example. And what's being pictured there, this is incredible. If you look at Genesis 1 and what God does in his creating, he makes something, he evaluates it, and then he separates it into something new each time. So he separates. He creates the heavens and the earth. And then he separates them into day and night with light. And then he separates again and puts things in there. He separates the land from the dry ground. And from that he puts in more things. And with humanity, if you go through Genesis 2, God invites Adam to basically look for a partner among the animal kingdom and lets him discover that there is none for him. And so the only one suitable is one just like him. So what he does is he takes what he has made and separates it. He separates Adam into two that are complementary, yet different. And what's fascinating about this is that from there, when Adam sees, it's not just like, wow. It's not just that, though there's that aspect to it. He recognizes that from one has come two, and what is intended is back to one. And that's why it says, for this reason, a man and his wife will separate from their parents and become one new family, and so forth and so on. So there's one example. Can you think of another example? Yes, when Jesus fell asleep on the boat. That's right, which is the last one, I believe. There's some more in the Old Testament. Yes, Abraham, Genesis fifteen. That's right. Uh, in Genesis fifteen, this is the covenant in which uh, Abraham has to sacrifice uh, animals, cuts them in half, and then that fiery presence of God, like a fiery pot, passes through the middle. And this is where he makes a covenant. He formalizes the covenant. Before he does that, Adam, uh, excuse me, Abraham falls into a deep sleep. Right? And that's what happened with Adam. And it's, it's not just merely like, uh, yeah, that dude's got sleep apnea or, or something like that. right? This is actually a technical term that, that's kind of sleep of death is what's in view. That he is in kind of a, a different setting. And what comes, if you look at it, what comes from Adam is new life. What comes from Abraham in this deep sleep is a new covenant. A new life between God and his people through Abraham. There's another one. No, no, no. Uh, he was fed by the crows, though. Uh, I know what you're talking about. He did not fall into a deep sleep for that one. Uh, Sisera is one, or Sisera, depending on how you want to uh, spell it or pronounce it. That's Judges 4. That's the guy who gets the Timpeg. <laughs> through his, his temple uh, and, and there's a whole song about it and it's, it's pretty awesome uh, it's the same term there and, and kind of what's at thought here is when you are put into the deep sleep what either results is death or new life it's one or the other and so in some ways this is going too far but in some ways I think it anticipates as, you know, the New Testament talks about the first death and the second death. Everyone dies except for Enoch and Elijah. <laughs> Everyone dies and you will either be raised up from the deep sleep or you will remain in the second death, which Revelation talks about. I think that's all probably in view there. There's another one. I could belabor this for a while. I'll stop with this one because we've got to talk about the storm. Daniel is one. Maybe that's the one you're thinking about. Daniel, in Daniel 10, when he receives a vision of the future blessing of Israel, he falls into a deep sleep, and it's a troubling vision he receives, but still. So that's what's happening with, with Jonah here. He's falling into a deep sleep. It's not just that he can sleep in a storm and he's got great sea legs. That is not what's in view. This is something that's happened to Adam This is something that's happened to Abraham, and now it's happening with Jonah. I want to backtrack for just a second, we'll end with this. Are there any other places in Scripture where storms show up with God's presence, do you think? And I I just showed my cards. I think God is showing up via this storm. Well, Noah would be one. That's true. Uh, That's judgment for sure. But it's not exactly I like it, but it's not exactly a storm like I have in mind. Would you say? Right. Moses, Noah, right. His judgment is passes. is absolutely through the weather. Yeah. You know, from from the heavens and from the abyss. That's that's what's going on. Mount Sinai. We're not gonna take the time to read this, but If you if in your notes, if you look up Exodus 19, starting in verse 16, the descriptions of God's presence on top of Mount Sinai is a great storm. It's you know it's booming thunder, there's lightning, the people are like, we are not going up there. You go, Moses. Right? If you read Job 30, verses 21 through 23, it describes God showing up as a storm. Psalm 107. Uh, if you just pick it up at verse 23, it's, all, it's actually recounting a lot of the Old Testament, Psalm 107. It sounds just like Jonah and what he's talking about. Isaiah 4.2 and following does that. Isaiah 17.12, and it compares the seas are like the Gentiles. In fact, that's a theme throughout the Old Testament that you have to learn to catch, that the ocean or the seas are often compared to the Gentiles and the nations. Israel is the land and the, the, the why do the nations roar why do the seas you know all that that's the Gentile nations wanting to eat up Israel that's the imagery that's going on so when he starts to put it in that perspective Jonah is running from God a storm shows up it's God's presence he's hurled at him he's in the midst of the seas he's in the midst of The Gentiles. That's where he is. And, of course, we have Jesus stilling the storm, which is, by the way, a purposeful replay on Jonah. The difference is uh, Jonah gives his life for the storm, uh, which I think anticipates another character in the New Testament. Jesus stills the storm, right? Jonah calls on his God, right, so to speak. Jesus is God, right? So these these things anticipate each other. And we'll stop with this. Some of these things are missed on us because our, our modern assumption about storms is that they are merely natural except when God wants or chooses to use them, right? And the reason we tend to shy away from that is not only because of the culture we are in, but also because we rightly don't know how to assign judgment. So if you go back to something like the earthquakes in Turkey, is that merely natural or did God send those? If we take the Bible seriously, we have to say God sent those. Now the question is, for what purpose? And the answer is that I have no idea but for His own glory. Right, He does that. And people will ask, well, well then, Aren't there Christians in Turkey? By the way, there are. Does God allow Christians to suffer alongside non-Christians? Absolutely, he does. Go to the cancer ward of any hospital. Of course he does. These things will be made clear with our deaths and second coming and all that, but yeah, we dare not say that something like Katrina or earthquakes in Turkey or flooding in, in California they're devoid of God. No way. It's, he controls it all, right? Every last bit of it. You better believe. What's he doing there? The best answer we can say is, I don't know, but I trust it is for our good and for this, this planet's good in some way. So there you go. All right, why don't I stop it there? It's almost 6.15. Um, I'm not going to open it up to questions. If you have any questions... Uh, that you want or some comments just come up afterwards and we'll, we'll talk through theirs so we, how far do we make it verse 5 6 verse 6 we made it verse 6 alright we've touched on some other things so here again read through this slowly and just ask the question are there other places where I see this sort of thing happening some of the obvious ones are with Jesus right oh yeah this is just like that and so you should ask the question how is it like it What are the differences? What am I supposed to take from this? Right? There's a whole lot more that we're going to walk through as we go along. So there's that. All right, let me pray for us, and we will end our time together. Heavenly Father, you are the one who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them through your Son in the power of the Spirit. You are the one who is still directing the course of this world, including every drop of rain. We don't know exactly why you do what you do and for what purpose, but we trust that you are good and that you're directing the course of this world for just the right ends you would have for it. And that end, we pray as you go into this work week that you would bless us with your presence because we know we cannot run from it and we know that you come for us and that we'd walk in your ways and that we'd remember you in all things and when we do forget you, that you would bring us back to yourself. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.